Well, good morning. My name is Paul Abdallah. I'm one of the pastors here at Stafford Baptist. It's a joy to be with you all this morning. I have not met you. I'd love to have the opportunity to meet you uh, after the service. I'll be standing in the foyer. Feel free to, to introduce yourself uh, to me. I'd, I'd, I'd love that. Well, this morning we are uh, in our sixth letter in our series, uh, Letters to the Church, where we're considering overviews of, of eight of the Apostle Paul's letters to different churches. This week we will be considering uh, the second of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles there to Second Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible, if you want to follow along in the same translation, you can uh, feel free to use one of those black pew Bibles in the pew in front of you and open to page 989. 989. Well, in light of the, the brief nature of this letter, uh, we are going to this morning do something that we haven't done throughout all of the series, which is read our text in its entirety. So we're going to read the, the whole letter of Second Thessalonians together before... Uh, and then working our way through it. We read all of Second Thessalonians. But before we do that, let's pray once more for the hearing and for the proclaiming of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this opportunity that we have to hear your word. Lord, our souls long for your salvation. And our hope for that salvation is found only in your word. And so we pray that your spirit would give understanding as we hear it this morning. That your your spirit would would open our minds to understand more of your promise to come again. And that, Father, we would set our hope not on earthly things, but on the the promise of Jesus' sure and victorious return. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now 2 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, 
For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Well, friends, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? See, we're, we're all waiting for something. For my family, we've been waiting for our vacation that starts tomorrow. We're maybe waiting for our marriage or to meet that right person. Maybe you're waiting for a new job or a child or grandchild to arrive. 
Over the past 18 months, much of us have been waiting for life to return to normal, to no longer have to deal with COVID. And so again, I ask, what are you waiting for? You know, what we are waiting for is usually that which our hope is set on, what our hope is fixed on. So another way to ask this question I'm asking is, what is your hope fixed on? What are you hoping for? And again, I would say our hope is often fixed on things like vacations or marriages, jobs, children, families. And I think that this reveals that often as Christians, we have a hope problem. Our hopes are so easily earthly focused. We don't pray as Jonathan Edwards prayed, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. See, we live today expecting to wake up in our bed tomorrow morning. And in that way, we're actually quite secular. And I would suggest that our hopes that are misplaced, that are earthly focused, come because we misunderstand that which our hope should be set on, the day of the Lord. Christianity at large is filled with misunderstandings about this day of the Lord. Every generation has a a quote-unquote prophet who proclaims they know when Jesus is coming and the, the world will be ending. We base our understanding on the day of the Lord on on movies like Left Behind. And misunderstanding the day of the Lord has led to a hope problem. Well, the Thessalonians, this young but noble church that we studied in part last week, had a hope problem. We saw some of that last week in in 1 Thessalonians. As we moved into chapters 4 and 5, Paul began to address the day of the Lord. But it seems that the problem has only gotten worse. The church has been deceived into thinking that the the day of the Lord has already come. What started as questions in 1 Thessalonians has now moved into deception here in 2 Thessalonians. Just to remind ourselves about this church uh, a little bit. The Apostle Paul's time there is documented for us in Acts 17. We know he spent uh, only a short time there before a group of unbelieving Jews stirred up a mob to, to... persecute him and and sends Paul out of Thessalonica. Ultimately, he he ends up in Athens. We see that that Paul seemingly sent Timothy back as soon as he could to to hear all the church was doing. And it was good news. Much of of 1 Thessalonians is a recounting of the evidence of God's good work and, and a call to keep going, to do so more and more. But it seems that that maybe even just a, a few months after sending that first letter, Paul gets a report that leads him to write the second letter, possibly really just months after he sent the first. And an important thing to know about this letter of 2 Thessalonians is we see the church is still enduring. It's still doing good. Look at at chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 we just read. Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, right? as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So, so Paul says, we boast about you in the churches of God, right? That doesn't sound like a church that is struggling. No, Paul is, is saying, look at this church. They're, they're, they're enduring, as, as you all should. The church is being boasted about, but apparently their suffering has given opportunity for some to believe false claims about the day of the Lord. And these Beliefs in in these false claims has led to idleness, as we'll see in chapter 3. And so Paul writes the second letter to the Thessalonians. So this morning, our our one big idea, 
our one sentence summary of, of 2 Thessalonians will be this. Do not grow weary in doing good as you await the victorious coming of Jesus Christ. Do not grow weary in doing good as you await the victorious coming of Jesus Christ. This church in, in Thessalonica that, that was faithful was beginning to panic because they misunderstood the return of Jesus. Yet the Lord is faithful. He will establish His people. He will guard them until Jesus comes. And so Paul says, press on. Keep going. Do not grow weary in doing good as you await the victorious coming of Jesus Christ. But what does this look like? What does it look like to endure in doing good as we await the coming of Jesus? Well, I think we see three ways in 2 Thessalonians that will basically follow the the three chapters that we just read. So first, stay steadfast in suffering. Stay steadfast in suffering in chapter 1. Second, stand firm on the scriptures in chapter 2. Stand firm on the scriptures. And then chapter 3, stay away from slackers. Stay away from slackers. So what does it look like to wait? Jesus is coming. It means to stay steadfast in suffering, to stand firm on the scriptures, and to stay away from slackers. So let's look first at at chapter 1. Stay steadfast in suffering. This letter begins very similarly to how 1 Thessalonians begins. It's the same three writers, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul is is the main author, as we'll see in chapter 3, verse 17. And as we just noted, Paul get, begins with his customary thanksgiving. He's giving God thanks to these, uh, for these brothers and sisters because they're enduring affliction. And they're not just enduring, but they're growing abundantly in the midst of this suffering. And Paul gives thanks to God because it is God's work that is allowing this, that is causing this endurance. And so as God graciously works in his people to, to lead them to endure suffering and affliction, Paul says that that points to that that is evidence of God's righteous judgment that is to come. So look at at chapter 1, verse 5. This is evidence, what is, well, this this endurance and the afflictions that, that Paul's giving God thanks for. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. God is working for his people. And so as Christians endure in suffering through God's grace, he's making them worthy of his kingdom. But not only that, he's displaying evidence of his future coming. Paul will say a similar thing in Philippians 1 verse 28. He'll tell the Philippians that their fearless endurance of opposition from their enemies is a clear sign to their enemies of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What an amazing truth. As God's people endure in suffering, as as God gives us grace to endure, it's actually a sign, it's evidence of God's righteous judgment that is to come. Well, what is his righteous judgment? Well, God's righteous judgment, as we see in in verses 6 through 10, is his repaying with affliction those who afflict, his relieving the affliction of the afflicted, all when Jesus is revealed from heaven. That is God's righteous judgment. He will repay with affliction those who are afflicting the Thessalonians. That is, God will not let evil go unpunished. He will repay them. Our our God is righteous. He, He cannot let evil go unpunished. 
Paul will say that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God or those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus. See, Christians are not to seek our own vengeance. No, we are to patiently endure suffering, entrusting that vengeance to the perfectly righteous one who is to come. When Jesus comes, we, we read this about the wicked in verse 9 of chapter 1. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So this punishment that, that Jesus will inflict is not an annihilation. It's not a ceasing to exist. But rather it is a being sent away from the presence of the Lord to bless and from the glory of his might. This is how God's punishment has, has always worked. You can think about Adam and Eve. When they sin, they're sent out of the garden, away from the, the presence of the Lord's blessing. When Israel is exiled, they're, they're sent out of Jerusalem. The presence of God leaves the temple. They're, they're sent away into a place where, where God, God's presence to bless does not exist in Babylon. See, this is how God's punished. He's, he sends away from the presence of the Lord to bless. And so, brothers and sisters, friends, this is what hell is. It is the place of eternal conscious punishment where we're sent away from God's presence to bless and know only his presence of judgment. It is a constant state of destruction. As as we meditate on on this this fact that that God will repay with affliction those who afflict, this judgment of the Lord ought to be a sober reminder to us as Christians. This is what we deserved. Every person is born, born deserving not God's kindness, but his everlasting wrath. The punishment of, of being sent away from his presence to bless. Why? Well, because God is holy as we sung. He's perfect in power and in love and in purity. And he created each of us to worship him, to be in right relationship with him. But we rebelled. We rejected that. We chose to worship the creation over the creator. And so we deserve his punishment. Yet it's this very punishment that was poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. See, it was Jesus who in Matthew 27 proclaimed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Son, sent away from the the presence of God the Father, bearing on himself all the wrath of God. Not because he deserved it, but because he stood in our place. It was Jesus who died the death that we deserve, but rose again. Showing that that he has borne, that his sacrifice was accepted, that death is defeated. And so as we think about God's justice to repay with affliction those who afflict, friends, we ought to turn to Jesus. His judgment is sure. But if we know Jesus, he has borne that judgment on himself. We are to believe in Jesus, even if that belief will lead to suffering. Because we know that when Christ returns, that God will not only repay the evildoers, but he will relieve the afflicted. So we see that God's righteous judgment is not just a repaying of the afflicted or repaying those who afflict, but it's a relieving of the afflicted. 
Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that, that we just considered, we see actually that God is just. God is just to bring re- relief to the afflicted. Look at verse 7. Or look at verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. What comfort for those who are being afflicted. Paul says this affliction will not continue. God will bring an end to it. Those who are in Christ will find relief. And all this will occur when when Jesus returns. It is Jesus who is the agent of the Lord's righteous judgment. He will be revealed from heaven in a a glorious way. He'll come in flaming fire, verse 8 says, inflicting vengeance. His coming will instill fear in the, the hearts of those who have rejected him. This sounds very similar to what we read in Isaiah 66. That Jesus is the Lord who will come in fire to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And when Jesus comes, he will be glorified at in his saints. He will be marveled at by all who have believed. And so brothers and sisters, this is what our suffering testifies to. Suffering in this life testifies to the truth that Jesus is coming and that God's judgment will come. And so Paul prays in verses 11 through 12 that because Jesus will turn, because their their suffering points to this righteous judgment, he prays that they will continue to grow, that God will make them worthy of of, of their calling, that he will fulfill every resolve of good and every work of faith so that the Lord Jesus may be glorified in them and they in Christ. Friends, what are we to do with this? I think the point is, is when we we set our hope on the return of Jesus Christ, we are ready to stay steadfast in suffering. When we set our hope on on the return of Christ, we are ready to stay steadfast in suffering. See, for the Christian, suffering is normal. It is to be expected. It's actually a sign of God's coming judgment. And so as the world grows increasingly more hostile to the truth of Christianity, we will only experience it more. But our brothers and sisters in, in communist and Muslim and Hindu cultures are already experiencing it. You know, this past week, I and the elders got to meet with some Chinese pastors, and they told us stories of the, the persecutions that they dealt with in China, the threat of imprisonment, the closing down of schools and camps because they were teaching Christian truths. See, many of our brothers and sisters around the world are already experiencing this kind of suffering. But I wonder, are you ready for this kind of suffering? Do you expect to suffer as a Christian? Charles Spurgeon once asked, Do you expect to be honored in the world where your Lord was crucified? See, the good news of 2 Thessalonians 1 is Paul's comfort for God's people. Our suffering is not meaningless. It's not the sign of a God who who does not care. No, it is the sign of of the evidence of Christ's return and God's righteous judgment to repay and to relieve. And so we can endure suffering. In other words, how do we know that we're waiting for the the return of Christ? Well, we're steadfast in the midst of suffering. But Paul's concern for the, the, the Christians in Thessalonica is not actually about remaining steadfast. See, he's, he's actually giving God thanks for that. They, they are doing that. They are enduring. Paul's concern is that they misunderstand the promise of Christ's return. 
And so we come to our second point in chapter 2. Stand firm on the Scriptures. Stand firm on the Scriptures. So Paul, having expressed his gratitude for the Thessalonians' endurance and encouraged them, the apostle turns to discuss the topic of the coming of Jesus. We read about the confusion that the Thessalonians have in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul does not want the church to be confused about this coming of Jesus. He doesn't want them to be confused about, about the day when Christ returns and His people will be gathered to Him, both dead and alive. It's this day that, that Paul has talked about before. In, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, we read this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So this topic was not new for the Thessalonians. But it does seem that some false claims are being made, whether by a spirit-empowered prophet or someone in spoken word, or even someone seems to have written a letter claiming to be Paul, telling them that the day of the Lord had come. But the Apostle Paul is going to correct their thinking. You know, 2 Thessalonians 2 can be one of the the more harder passages to understand. So let me make a few notes to help us understand what what Paul's doing here in in chapter 2. First, Paul's purpose is to bring comfort to those who are shaken in mind and alarmed. One commentator said it this way, Paul's purpose is not to predict the future, but to pastor his readers by giving them a word of comfort about the end time event. So Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 is not really building a systematic theology about the the end of the world. No, his goal is to comfort the Thessalonians with the truth that Jesus has not returned but will come again. His goal is comfort. The second thing we ought to note is that Paul had already taught these things to the Thessalonians when he was with them. We read this in in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So yes, there are some things we can learn about the end of, of the world from 2 Thessalonians 2, but there's actually a lot that we don't know that even the Thessalonians may have known. Because Paul's purpose is to pastor the church, not to outline everything he believes. And the third thing to note from 2 Thessalonians 2, before we we really dig into it a little bit, is that the Apostle Paul is clear, Jesus hasn't come back yet. He has not returned. Well, how do we know Jesus hasn't come back? Well, we see some things have to happen first. Look at verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So before Jesus comes back, two things have to take place. The rebellion and then the man of lawlessness coming. By rebellion, I think Paul refers to an an all-out turning against, uh, against God. We know that since sin, Adam and Eve have been rebelling, been rebelling and, and, and mankind have been rebelling against God. 
But before the Lord returns, Paul says there will be an all-out rebellion. And I think this coincides then with the, the coming of this man of lawlessness. This man of lawlessness is one who's set against every other God in heaven and earth. He is a man who raises himself, magnifies himself to be above all other gods, including the only true and living God. See that the language in verse 4 of takes his seat in the temple of God, I think just goes to support the point that this man of lawlessness will be one who will claim to be God. So a man will come who will, who will oppose Christ and God in every way. I think Paul here is drawing upon the language of Daniel 11, where Daniel speaks of a king, a, a man who will rise up and exalt himself above all others. We read about this man in Daniel eleven thirty six and 37. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the, the one beloved by women. He shall, pay, he shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. This man of lawlessness is, I would understand to be the, the Antichrist, the one who will deny the Father and the Son, will exalt himself to, to be in the place of God. But we learn something else about this man of lawlessness in verse 6, that right now he's actually being restrained. The Thessalonians would have known who's restraining him, but I don't think we can know for sure. But what we can be confident of is that he's being restrained for a time. And while he's being restrained... There's yet still a work of mystery of lawlessness at work now. This is similar to how 1 John, in 1 John 2.18, the apostle tells us, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, and therefore we know it is the last hour. So the man of lawlessness, I think, has not yet come, Paul says, but the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There are already many who are working against God now. The Thessalonians would have known this, right? They're, they're suffering. They know that there are those opposed to God and his people. So friends, do not be surprised to come up against those in this world who are working in direct opposition to God and to Christ. We ought to expect this. But the man of lawlessness will not be restrained for, forever. The lawless one will come. We read about his coming in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Ultimately, we see Paul says Satan is behind the work of the Antichrist. His coming will be marked with power and false signs and wonders. I, this all of these things describe what will be the coming of Jesus. And so I think Paul's using that language to, to show us that this person, this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, is, is seeking to set himself in the place of Christ. And his coming will, will be the mark of, of God sending a strong delusion in the man of lawlessness. That those who had refused to love the truth will be given what they desired. What is false? You know, I wonder if you're here this morning and as we were reading that just now or, or before, you, you wonder how a God who is love could send them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. 
How is that loving? Well, I think it's important to note that who God is sending this delusion to. Look at verse 10. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion. These are those who have already refused to love God, to love his truth and be saved. They want nothing to do with God. And so in other words, God in his just judgment gives them exactly what they desire. So if you're here this morning, and up to this point you have not believed God's truth of the gospel hope of Jesus Christ, that he alone is able to save us from certain punishment, I'd I'd encourage you to refuse no longer. See, Paul's talking about something in the future to happen. So so now God is is being gracious through his proclaimed word to, to, to declare the truth that if you believe, you will be saved. God has promised what, what our destiny will be, but he makes his offer of salvation known through his word. So look to Christ. Look to Jesus who, he, who has borne the wrath of God in our place. Put your faith in him and turn from your sin. Well, what's, what's Paul's point? Why tell us about this man of lawlessness? Well, Paul wants them to remember the, the, wants the, the Thessalonians to remember their salvation and to stand firm upon the traditions that they had been taught. Look at verse 13. So having, having talked of God's judgment, he says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. See, what Paul's doing here is he's not trying to cause doubt amongst the Thessalonian Christians. No, he's trying to reassure them. While those who reject Christ will perish, he gives thanks to God because they have been graciously chosen to be saved through the Spirit and belief in the truth. God has called them. And because God has called them, they can be confident and stand firm upon the Word of God. And so I believe that this is Paul's point in chapter 2. Don't get tricked. Instead, be thankful for God's work in your life and hold fast to the tradition of Scripture and wait for Jesus to return. Don't be deceived about about speculation about the day of the Lord. No, trust God's word and hold fast to it. See, those who are waiting for for Jesus, do so by standing firm on the scriptures, on the teaching of, of the Bible. So what does it look like? What does it look like to stand firm? I think we see two, two points, two observations for our lives about how we can stand firm. First, stand firm and don't speculate. Stand firm and don't speculate. So often, our conversations about the end times are, are built around speculation, about that which we don't know and can't know. You know, this is true throughout all of history. Again and again, people have, have tried to speculate about when Jesus will come. And again and again, we've seen them proven wrong. You could take, for example, a, a man named William Miller, who was a preacher in the 1800s. He predicted that, that Jesus would return March 21st, 1843, or March 21st, 1844, somewhere in between that year. Well, those years came and went, as we know. And when those dates passed, he, he changed his mind. And he said, no, I'm, I'm sorry. It was, it was actually October 22nd, 1844. 
But each time he was proven wrong and ultimately discredited. Brothers and sisters, nothing good happens when we speculate about the return of Jesus. Jesus himself said, only God the Father knows when when these things will, will come about. And so what are we to do? Well, we're to stand firm upon the scriptures. Stand firm about what God has taught us. You know, when it comes to the end times, we ought to be marked by a humility. Because there's so much that we don't know. One commentator put the need for humility this way. When he said, God is faithful to his prophetic promises, yet the actual fulfillment of these promises often surprises. You see, just as God was faithful to send Jesus as the Messiah that the Old Testament promised, he did so in a way that surprised even the best Jewish scholars. And so friends, you and I can be sure that God will be faithful to his promises. God will send Jesus. Jesus will come. But we can also be sure that that coming will likely surprise even the most sure of us today. So stand firm upon God's word. Now, avoiding speculation doesn't mean that we're to to avoid thinking altogether about the return of Jesus. You might be tempted to say, well, I don't need to think about it then. I I don't want to speculate, so I'm just going to, I'm going to put it off off my mind. But that's not what what Paul says. No, we are to to wait eagerly and not worry. And so that's the, the second point The second way we stand firm upon the scriptures is we wait eagerly and we don't worry. So not only are we tempted to to speculate when it comes to the end of the world, but we're also speculated, we're we're also tempted to be anxious. This was true of the Thessalonians. Look, remember what we read? They, They were alarmed, shaken in mind. But Paul wants them to be comforted and established in every good work. That's what we see in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is why Paul has written to them. He wants them to be comforted. Christians are to to wait eagerly and earnestly for the coming of Jesus. But we're not to worry. There will be much trouble as we wait but we can take confidence that God will come. Two truths in 2 Thessalonians 2 that that help us not worry. First, look at verse 8. When Jesus returns, the Lord Jesus will have an effortless victory over the man of lawlessness. Verse 8, and when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing but the appearance of his coming. Your brothers and sisters, if you remember nothing else from the sermon, remember verse 8. That when, when Jesus returns, no matter how great this man of lawlessness thinks he is, he will be brought to nothing by the very appearance of Jesus' coming. With just one breath, Jesus will wipe him away. Total and complete victory. Rest in that truth. Jesus will win. So the Antichrist will, will seek to, to set himself in the place of God and Jesus, but he will fail. His doom is sure. The end of the story has been written. When Jesus comes, his very appearance will bring to nothing all lawlessness. So don't worry. Don't worry about what this man of lawlessness might do. Jesus will win. The second truth that comforts us, that helps us not worry, I think is that God is sovereign over all of this. See, that this man of lawlessness right now is, is being restrained. Paul says in verse 11, Therefore God sent them a, a strong delusion. See, we don't, we don't have to worry about the end of times, the, this day of the Lord, because we can trust that God is in control. 
He's orchestrating all things to bring about his good purposes. So trust him, waiting with eagerness, but not worrying. Friends, if you're anxious about the the end, the, the day of the Lord, find comfort in these truths that Jesus is victorious and God is sovereign. Do not grow weary in doing good, brothers and sisters, as we await the victorious coming of Jesus Christ. Instead, continually to confidently stand firm and eagerly await the coming of the Lord Jesus. But Paul's not done yet. He continues in in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. He here requests prayer. He longs to see the word of God speed ahead and be honored in in all the world. Not everyone has faith, Paul says, but but we are sure that the, the Lord is faithful here again, we see this, the same point that we just made. He will establish us. He will guard us from the evil one. And so Paul is confident in the obedience of the Thessalonians. We see that in verse 4 of chapter 3. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Paul is confident that they will do the things that, that Paul commands, that they will remain steadfast in suffering, that they will stand firm on the scriptures. And finally, as we move into verse 6, that they will stay away from slackers. Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. Paul writes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So Paul gives the Thessalonians the the command to, to keep away from any brother or sister who's not walking or who is walking in idleness. You know, I think something that stands out right there is this command is given in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The authority and the weight that comes with this command. It's as if Jesus was there. It's like in the military when a a command is relayed from a a senior officer. It's given as if that senior officer is there. It carries all the weight and authority of that officer. And so too this command of Paul carries all the weight and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to understand then that this is a serious matter. We don't do this only when we feel like it. No, this is, this is something that should mark God's people. Staying away, keeping away from any brother who is walking in idleness. This is not the first time Paul addresses idleness in the, the Thessalonian church. We see it addressed in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. This seems to be a, a persisting struggle for the Thessalonians. And I think it's likely connected to their, their second coming. If they thought the day of the Lord had come, well, then what's the purpose in doing any work? If it's here, at the end of, if it's, if it's here then, then why work? You know, that, that's what it means to, to be idle. It means to, to, to be busy bodies, but not busy at work. To be lazy, apathetic. But Paul directs the church to stay away from those who are not walking in accord to what they have received. Paul, in verses 7 through 10, recounts how he and his partners lived with the Thessalonians. They were not idle when they were with them. No, they they could have asked the Thessalonians for support, but they chose not to be a burden to them. Meaning meaning that Paul and his his partners had to to labor night and day, both to to preach the gospel, but also then to, to earn a living, to eat. And they did that to set an example for the Thessalonians to imitate. Paul wanted them to imitate him in that work. So if you're here this morning, brothers and sisters, and you struggle with idleness, I'd encourage you to find someone in this congregation, someone you can imitate, someone you can, you can follow and, and, and learn for what, what it looks like to live in a life that is not idle. 
See, but not only did, did Paul set the example, but he gave the command in verse 10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Well, friends, work is a fundamental part of God's good world. Work existed before sin. In Genesis 2.15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God has always and continues to call his people to work. Sin has affected our work. It makes our, our work much harder. You know, it's, it's hard to, to mow our grass. It's, it's hard to, to drive through the traffic to get to our jobs. And we're, we're tempted to avoid work. But Paul says we are called to work. Look at verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul says to so the, the idle Thessalonians, get back to work. Brothers and sisters, beware of our human flesh. Because it will look for any reason to avoid doing the work God has given us. Even a, a theological reason. A reason like, oh, the, the day of the Lord is, is coming. Whatever that work looks like for you. Maybe your, your work is parenting. Press on in that work. Maybe your work is, is to, to, to uh, go to a, to a job and work in IT. Press on in that work. Whatever it is, Paul says, work, labor. I do want, I want to be clear here. It's not wrong to, to get help from others. But when our need arises out of laziness and choosing not to work when we could, Paul says, start working. For work is a part of God's good creation and his good call to his people. But the command actually is, is not just to work, right? The command is actually to watch out for those who are not working. Look at verses 13 through 15 of chapter 3. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. To those who are continuing in their work, Paul says, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in doing good. But part of doing good is actually dealing, warning with those who are idle. See, brothers and sisters, idleness is a sin. And any sin left undealt with in the body is like a little leaven in bread, which will leaven the whole lump, ruin the whole loaf. And so we must warn those who are idle, Paul says. And if they continue in unrepentance, if they continue to sin, we must not associate with them. We must do, have nothing to do with them, he says in, in verse 14. But that, that attitude there is not as an enemy, but as a brother. Right? Just as you would warn a sibling if they were running towards the end of a cliff, we also ought to warn those around us who are continuing in unrepentant sin. Dealing with sin can be hard and difficult, but it is worth it. And so we must deal with sin and idleness because it's a direct contradiction to God's command. Dealing with sin is, is good for the, the whole body. As we, we use that illustration of a, a little leaven ruining a whole loaf of bread. It's good for the, the whole body. Paul says it, it's good for the, the unrepentant sinner. I think that, that idea that he may be ashamed. I think it's, it's the shame is to, is to lead to godly repentance. It's the same kind of shame that, that Paul hoped for in, in 2 Corinthians 7. The kind of shame that would lead them to repent. So it's good for the body, it's good for the, the unrepentant sinner, and it's good for the, the world to see and know what the Christian life ought to look like. 
dealing with sin is hard, but it is worth it. And Paul calls the church to deal with the sin of idleness, to not associate with those who continue to be idle. So part of awaiting for Jesus' return is to stay away from slackers. It is to be diligent, to continue to do our work as we await the victorious coming of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul concludes 2 Thessalonians with this benediction, asking the Lord to give them peace at all times and in every way. He writes to demonstrate that this letter is, is from him and not from something to claim to be Paul. And he prays that they might know the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the, the letter of Second Thessalonians. So I wonder, brothers and sisters, as we talked at the beginning, what are you waiting for? Is your hope in, in anything beyond this earthly life? See, to, to be a Christian is to have hope that looks past this life to the next while staying steadfast in suffering, standing firm on the scriptures, and staying away from slackers. Therefore, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good, but await the victorious coming of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of, of Jesus' victorious return. Lord, we're thankful for the confidence that we have that when Jesus comes the very appearance of his coming will wipe away all lawlessness. Father, we pray that we would confidently await Jesus' return. Lord, that you would set our eyes not to, to hope on earthly things, but to, to hope on that which is eternal. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to not grow weary in doing good as we set our hopes there, that we would wait with eagerness, continuing to do good to those around us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.